We are just going to jump right into the deep end. Uh, it's always fun to start off with a bunch of Bible study, right? Wow, okay, that's not very much enthusiasm for the Bible at a church. You would just think we could drum up a little bit more, but that's okay. Um, as you know, most of the New Testament is male. It's, it's, they're letters that were written to different people. And the process that would happen is uh, this, uh, this Apostle Paul just had this unbelievable talent for going into a new place uh, where he didn't know anybody and kind of setting up camp. And he would walk into like the Jewish synagogue and he would have these opportunities to speak and he would open up the Old Testament and he would show them from the Old Testament how Jesus was going to come. And then he would be like, hey, guess what? Jesus came and it was amazing and here's some of what he taught us. And people would believe or, or wouldn't, you know, just depending on the situation. But it was always, it was always pretty straightforward. He would start in a town uh, for months, sometimes years, and he would be talking to these people, he would be helping them like figure things out, figure life out, figure how all this stuff sort of worked and, 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 and the way things would change for them. And then once things were off and running, he would head down the road to the next town. That's kind of the, the pattern, the system that worked. And then later, these churches would either have questions, they'd be like, hey, you didn't cover a few things, uh, what about XYZ? Or he would hear rumors that something was going completely off the rails and he would write letters to them saying, you have got to fix this. This is absolutely ridiculous. You've got to get this taken care of. And so when we read the New Testament, we're often reading letters. And you know that. You know all that. Um, but the letter to the Thessalonians is completely different than the norm. Uh, it's just completely uh, different. I've got a picture of Thessalonica, or um, this is modern uh, Thessalonica, or how was I? I was trying to listen to the pronunciation. Uh, Thessalonica is how they would pronounce it, or Thessaloniki, and it's not how we pronounce it. We use, you know, in the church we always pronounce things kind of our own way, and we just roll with it, and that's the way it is. So we, Book of Thessalonians, the church in, in, in Thessalonica. So this is the modern town, but I, I didn't, I obviously don't have a picture of the ancient town, but uh, Paul would come into town, and he would kind of just, he set up shop. Everything had started like it was supposed to. Everything was normal. Um, and then three weeks in, he, he didn't mean to, but Paul started a riot and got chased out of town and banned from the town. Now, there were still some believers who had kind of like, yeah, this makes sense. We're in. We like this. But he had only had about three weeks, according to the book of uh, Acts in chapter 17. So he hadn't had long. I mean, three weeks, I mean, that's hardly enough time to like organize a potluck meal, much less like get this church up and rolling. It just wasn't, it wasn't much. And so Paul scoots on down the road to Athens, and he's just biting his fingernails about these people that have come to faith, and he's just so worried. I mean, he can't get on Facebook and see how the church is doing. They don't have a website. He doesn't know how how things are going and he's just he's kind of terrified that the three weeks he spent there and all this good progress is just completely gone now if we were and this would be cool but i mean imagine if we had decided as a church you know like we we're going to plant a church in downtown saint paul and people were like sounds good what's the plan and we said well we're going to go into town and we're going to convert some folks you'd be like oh yeah that sounds sensible that seems like a good place to start and then if i said yes yeah, step two we're going to start a riot You'd be like, I, I don't know about that, but I've heard there's no such thing as bad publicity, so I suppose, whatever it takes. And then, step three, we're going to get ourselves banned from town, and we're just going to let things roll and see how it happens. You'd be like, that's, that's a, it'll never work. That church will never last. Those folks will never make it. That's what you would feel, and that's the book of Thessalonians. That's what's happened to this church. And if you want to read all the details about it, you can read the book of Acts uh, chapter 17. It's not going to go well. It just isn't going to go well. 
So Paul, you know, he's, he's literally that parent that is up till the absolute last minute of curfew waiting for the teenager to come home. He's nervous. He's wondering, is, is everything okay? And if they're a minute late, he's like, is something wrong? Is something going to happen? Uh, Paul is that family member waiting in the, the hospital waiting room, just waiting for the doctor to come out with news. He doesn't know. And he's so concerned about these souls that have, have come to Christ. He just doesn't know. So in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we get a kind of peek behind the curtain of what Paul is thinking. And it's so fascinating to read uh, his thoughts about this. So I, if you will, take your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and turn to chapter 2 and verse 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. This is a glimpse into Paul's thinking about his, his concerns, his worries. He says, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. And then he says uh, in verse 6, he says, But Timothy has just come back to us and he has brought us good news about your faith and love. And he describes the church in this way. This is in the first chapter, but he describes the church. He says, You became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. What? I mean, this church, like, they're, they're, they shouldn't even exist, and they're a model. They shouldn't have made it, and yet they're doing awesome. I read that, and there's something in me that kind of wells up and says, I want this for the Woodbury Church of Christ. I want us to not only face hardships and difficulties and make it, I want us to like just do awesome through that. I want God to use those hardships and difficulties to just well up in us something that just grows us and matures us and we become this model church. So people were like, well, did you hear about the Woodbury Church? They went through this and they're just awesome. Have you seen them? Their people have made it. This person in their church was dealing with this sickness or this trouble or this difficulty and they just came through the other side and it's unbelievable. That's what I get excited about thinking about what could it be for us that we just don't, and this is so cliche. I get it, it's so cliche. I was working on this sermon and I was like, man, God, please help me figure out a different way to say this because this sounds so cheesy. It's such a bumper sticker, but I'm going to do it anyway because I can't think of anything better. But how do we become a church that not only survives but thrives? How do we become a church that doesn't just survive? We don't just make it. We're not just, you know, marking time, but we thrive. Where people look at us, where God looks at us, and he's just like blown away by, uh, by how well we're handling circumstances in life and, and, and the world around us. I mean, I, that's what I want. So when we think about this, when we think about this idea, what is it about the, the Thessalonian church that made them this way. I think you have to say, you have to understand, I don't want anybody to misunderstand this, it's obviously the power of God working through the Spirit in the lives of believers. Clearly. But Paul does point to some virtues, some practices, some beliefs, some characteristics that the Thessalonian people had that I think we can lean into and, and actually find ourselves like able to handle life and circumstance and difficulty, uh, not, I don't want to say with ease, but able to come through at the other side 
uh, doing well. I love that. I love this whole idea that three weeks in and they were just this amazing people, this amazing body of believers. So how do we become a church that not only survives but thrives? And that's what this series is about. We're calling it more and more because it's a phrase that Paul uses throughout this letter. He writes this letter to them and you keep thinking the other shoe's going to drop and Paul's going to say, hey, you got to fix this, you got to fix this. But he keeps saying, hey, you guys are doing great here, just keep doing it more and more. You're doing awesome over here, just keep doing it more and more. And so we're going to look at a few different virtues, a few different qualities that these people had that just made, seemed to make the difference between making it and kind of falling apart. Because that's what I want for us. I think that's what you want for our church as well. That we're, just, we're able to not just make it, but we're able to make a difference in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our community. That's what we want. That's what this is all about. So, to uh, quote uh, Lewis Carroll, we should begin at the beginning. What was it that these people had that made this initial like sort of handoff between Paul coming to preach and their ability to like take in that information? What, what was it that made them like open and receptive to the, to the truth? So we're going to look at three verses where Paul uses the exact same word in First and Second Thessalonians. I'm going to read through these uh, real quickly. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Circumstances weren't ideal, but you welcomed the message. Same word translated differently in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. You accepted it. You welcomed it. You accepted it. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he uses the same word to describe people who weren't doing so well. Not the Thessalonians, but another group of people. He said, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Same word, all three times. Same exact word uh, in, in the original language that's being used in these different passages. So I just want you to think about this. Just conceptually think about this for a second. You have a guy you have never met before. This guy named Paul. You've never met. You have no idea who he is. You have no idea his credentials. You have no idea what school he got his master's of theology from. You have no clue. He waltzes into town. And this is a gross oversimplification of his message, I'm sure. I wasn't there to hear it. But imagine he's in the synagogue or he's in the town square. And he's like, hey, everybody, listen up. I've got some news. Oh, okay, what is it? Well, there was this Jewish rabbi in Israel. He lived and then died and then came back to life. Oh, okay, and, and now he's king of the universe, even bigger than Caesar. Okay, that, words like that will get you in trouble, Paul, but whatever. In fact, he's so important, you should throw away all your idols and you should devote your life to following him. That's the message. That's the message. And people responded to that. What kind of people hear that? Again, I realize it's an oversimplification, but what kind of people hear that and say, I'm in. This is good. I like this. I'm going to devote my life to this. And what it is, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but what it is is it's people who are open and teachable to the leading of God in their lives. Open and teachable to the leading of God in their lives. I mean, we'd all sign up for that, right? I mean, this is so fascinating to me to think about because there's something different about their reaction to the truth. And it wasn't gullibility. 
This is an important distinction. Because if they were just gullible people, then as soon as Paul left and things started getting difficult, they would have been right back to their old ways or done whatever was familiar and easy. It wasn't gullibility. There was something different about their posture toward the truth that made them able to receive Paul's message and thrive through this. In fact, though, there's this group of people that makes it, but there's a lot of people in town that riot and drive him out of town. This is the same thing that happened to Jesus, of course, when Jesus would preach. There's some people who were like, I get it, you make sense, I'm amazed. And there's a lot of people that want to kill him after they hear him preach. And there's a different posture in reaction to the truth in different people. And I think it's fair to say that the difference between the people that got it and the difference between the people that missed it or didn't want to have anything to do with it was whether or not they were open to the truth. And we might describe this, we might say it's teachability or coachability. I mean, there's not a really good word for this, and I wonder if it's just a feature of our adversity to this idea. But openness, teachability, coachability, just something about their ability to take in uh, something different and something new and respond to it in just this, this in, incredible fundamental way. Now, this is a description of how they're converted, but it's their posture toward the truth. And here's the thing. I think we all believe that we're open and teachable. We all believe that. Um, and, and we all think that, but if we ask your spouse, they would say, no, I've been trying to get them to do these things for years, and they're not really listening to me. But I think we would all, I would, we would all try to at least uh, claim the idea that we're open to, we want to know the truth, we want to learn. Um, and this is not going to make sense for some of you, but I think humans as a whole don't have a positive reaction to new things. Just, just generally speaking. And this is why I think this is true. I was just a, a young child when this happened, uh, but a well-known company tried to update a beloved product, and they tried to take something that everybody loved and make it new, and the product lasted 74 days before there was, you know, rioting in the streets. Uh, how many of you remember New Coke? Yeah, New Coke. And it was just universally panned. Nobody wanted new Coke, right? I mean, who, why mess with a classic? Why mess with something that's awesome and something that's great? Here is the thing. In blind taste tests, which do you think people universally preferred? The taste of old Coke or the taste of new Coke? Yeah, it wasn't Pepsi. They universally preferred new Coke, but when they heard it was new Coke and they were doing away with old Coke, what do you think people did? They ran to the store and they bought up all the old Coke they could and they rioted and they wrote letters to their senator and they just had uh, an absolute fit about the whole thing. Why? It seems to be that because it was new. That seems to be the difference between new Coke and old Coke. Uh, they're actually going to try to bring new Coke back. You might see something in shelves. It might already be in shelves. So if you really want to do the blind taste test, you know, you can give that a shot. But people liked it until they knew it was new and different. Now, you're like, well, that wouldn't be me. That's not how I operate. That's not the way I am. There are, there's so much research in this area, and it's so fascinating. I love reading books about it, but there's all these words that describe the way that our brains work. 
particularly with regard to taking in new information and new ideas. There's just all these words. So you've heard them. You've heard like confirmation bias, echo chamber, backfire effect. You've heard all those words. Maybe you've read books or articles that describe like the way people kind of take in or are unwilling to take in new information. It's super fascinating, but you can see all this in action. You don't have to read a book. All you have to do is go to a family reunion and talk about politics. And you can see all this in action and see how people take in different ideas. Uh, it's not fun. <laughs> I don't recommend it. In fact, there's some people who will not show up to those types of events because they had something like that happen, but you can do it. Or another way you can do this, if, if you want to do it right now, you can just go to the comment section on Facebook and you can argue with somebody about just about anything and you'll see the echo chamber, confirmation bias, backfire effect. You can see all those things taking place in real time. Two quick observations that I want to make with regard to this idea of being open and teachable. Number one, we're more willing to accept ideas that we want to believe. You're like, no, no, no. I am like Spock. I am cool and calm and logical. All I need is, is pure logic to convince me of something. That's not true, unfortunately. I mean, you may think that, but that's not true. And Sorry to have to break the news to you. I, I, I think we can generally prove this. Um, I don't know, it's probably not true for everybody, but many of you, if you step on a scale in the morning to weigh yourself and you do not like the number the scale shows you, you will step back off the scale and then step back on it to confirm that the scale has not malfunctioned. Does this thing need batteries? What's wrong with it? It's probably old. I need to get a new one. Because you do not like the information it is giving you. If you like the number that shows up on the scale, you go about your day and you're just happy as a clam because you're like, oh, this is good. You, because you liked the information that that scale gave you. This is the difference between accepting information that we want to, we want to believe and accepting information we don't. We're more willing to accept ideas that we want to believe. So it's not logic that is driving us. It tends to be emotion. Secondly, we seek out uh, validation for what we want to believe. We seek out validation or information that validates what we want to believe. Um, the internet has turned this into a full-blown epidemic. Uh, YouTube, when their goal was, you guys know what YouTube is? You've heard of YouTube, right? Some of you, I'll introduce you later if you don't know. Their goal was to get 100 billion hours of YouTube watched a day. That was their goal. And so in order to achieve that goal, they have this little sidebar. And when you watch one video, they suggest a second video for you to watch. And what YouTube had done is the second video they suggested was a popular video on YouTube. And then eventually people had watched the video and they stopped watching. And so they changed things up. And they took what you watched... And then they suggested a second, maybe more, more obscure video in the same vein for you to watch. And so if you watch, oh, I like videos of cats playing pianos, then they would suggest videos of like penguins playing harmonica or whatever it was. And you would just get down this rabbit hole. Now, that's all fine and good if you're watching cat videos. But if you're watching conspiracy theory videos, then all of a sudden you come out the other side of 100 billion hours of YouTube thinking that the world is flat. That's what you end up confirming and going deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole. I saw this, uh, and, and did you know that actually the, there is such a thing as the Flat Earth Society? Did you know that? That exists. This is a thing. The Flat Earth Society has members all around the globe. I'll just let you read the comment there below. All around the globe. We tend to take in information that validates what we believe, and we tend to discard information that we don't want to believe. 
So we get into, we get into this video and this vein of this thought, and, and a lot of, there's been a lot of articles, a lot of research done on this, but what has happened is that the internet has turned itself into a giant confirmation bias echo chamber. And this is why some of you have, have experienced this, where you're talking with your wife about needing a new rug, and then all of a sudden in your Instagram feed is an advertisement for a new rug, and you're like, oh, what is going on? Or this is why that uh, you, you uh, watch a show on Netflix and all of a sudden Netflix thinks you like these shows. Or Spotify. My kids listen to my Spotify. Some of you are like, Spotify, what language are you speaking? Spotify is a music service. And it used to suggest really good songs. And then I started letting my kids listen to it. And now it only suggests things from Disney musicals. That's all it thinks I like. Because it got more and more and more and more uh, niche as it went along. I think we're fooling ourselves if we don't think this is a struggle in our discipleship as well, where we get stuck and we think there's nothing I have to change, there's nothing I have to learn, there's no ways I have to grow. I want you to read uh, Paul's words, and this is 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, 4 and verse 3. He says, and he's talking, he sounds like he's talking about YouTube and Facebook and, 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 and Amazon here. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Why? Well, it challenges what they want to believe and what they want to think and what they want to do. Instead, to suit their own desires, in other words, to believe what they want to believe, they will gather around them a great number of YouTube videos to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will gather around the many friends on Facebook that will confirm their beliefs and they will mute the people with whom they disagree or they will block the people and the ideas with whom they disagree so that they only hear things filtered through what their beliefs already are. Paul, of course, doesn't say all that, but man, I sure wonder if he might have. Sometimes we think, um, well, no, 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 everybody that I talk to agrees with me. <laughs> you only talk to people that agree with you. And I know we think this, we think, well, other people, yes, Patrick, other people are that way. But this isn't, listen, this is not a millennial problem. This isn't a baby boomer problem. This isn't an old-fashioned problem or a newfangled problem. This is a human problem where we just want to settle into our ideas and we don't want to be challenged. We don't want to have anything change. We don't want to have anything different. We don't want anything uh, to move around on us. Now, some of you are like, well, okay, objection, objection, objection. Can I raise my hand? Objection. I have interacted with very many confused people in the world. There are some ridiculous, crazy, confused people out there. You're absolutely right. There are ridiculous, crazy, confused, and hardcore about their confusion people out there. In fact, what's the old saying? People are like concrete, thoroughly mixed up, and firmly set. I mean, that's absolutely true. Yes, I get it. People are confused, but they don't believe they are. They don't believe they are. Here's why this is such a problem. Discipleship. Discipleship. Your lifestyle of learning more about Christ and being drawn into closer relationship to him, discipleship is transformation. Discipleship is transformation. Uh, you could say discipleship is change. Discipleship is change. Information that we get and then integrating that information into our lives. But we never get to the integration point when we never take in the information. Discipleship is continually, uh, continually allowing the Spirit to challenge us. 
to, to, to continually work all these core values of love and justice into every corner of our lives. Repentance, the very word repentance that should be a regular habit of all disciples is change. Repentance means I've been doing something wrong and I need to change it. That's what it is. And when we are resistant and defensive of anything new and anything different and any change, well, then discipleship is going, just not going to happen in your lives. And unfortunately, isn't this often what we see in our own lives, but in other lives in the church, where for decades people have gotten themselves in a rut and they have not allowed the Spirit of God to soften up their heart, soften up their lives, and to make important, vital changes. Colossians 3.10 that we are, being, uh, we are being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, of our creator. That we are made new in Ephesians 4 in the attitude of our minds. That, that when Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2.13, that the spirit of God, this openness, it's working in us. I mean, this is our fifth marker. I know we haven't gone over these in a while, and we should. But these banners up here on the wall, they have different markers of what it means to be a disciple. And this bottom marker here means, says that disciples are being transformed into the image of Christ. And unless you've got it all figured out, then you still have some transforming to do. And unless you're open to the Spirit of God transforming you and changing you and shaping you, well, then you're stuck. You're stuck. So, now I know some people are like, well, I think the world's problem is that they're too open-minded or too teachable. It's not really people's problem. It's that they're resistant to the truth. So what's the solution? Let's go back to the texts that we read earlier. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, 2, 13, and 2, 10. He says, you welcomed the message. You accepted it. Then the people who had difficulty, they refused to love the truth. So what does it mean to be open and teachable? As Paul uh, mentioned earlier, we, uh, my, my, my family and I, uh, we did foster care for about 15 months. And one of the wonderful things about the foster care system, there's a lot of difficulties, but one of the wonderful things about the foster care system, at least in Minnesota, is they provided you with a lot of information for how to do your best as a foster parent. Because you just like anything, you kind of go into it thinking you're more or less got it figured out. And the more you get drawn into it, the more you realize how ill-equipped you are to handle kids who have, you know, been raised with trauma. Or kids who don't respond well. Kids with abandonment issues who don't respond well to being grounded to their room as a punishment. So the foster care system just does this great job of like, like giving you information. I think sometimes they overdo it. Uh, those of you that have been through the foster care training, uh, we had to sit through three and a half hours of child safety seat instruction. So how you buckle a child safety seat in? Click. There you go. But no, it's three and a half hours. Ours was. It was three hours, but our teacher went long because I guess she couldn't get all the information in there. Like, I think you've covered it thoroughly. We got it. But one of, the things, uh, one of the things that we were taught, and I just thought this was so helpful, this was a professor they brought in um, who was a professor of social work, diversity, and inclusion training, and he had also happened to be an adopted kid that was adopted in a transracial household. And so he was adopted as an African-American kid in a white household, and he had a lot of insight on how to navigate some of those difficulties. It was very good. And I tell you all that because what I want to show you is what he said, and I think it's good, and I don't want you to think I just made it up. He wrote, he, at the beginning of his presentation, and I wrote this down, I thought it was so good. He said, here's the way things work, and here's why people have such a difficult time learning how to be good foster parents. And he drew this pie chart, and he said, just imagine this pie chart represents everything there is to know. Big, huge circle. Everything that there is to know. 
all right? And then this slice, this little orange slice right here, represents everything that you know and everything that I know as individuals, right? That's probably being too generous, but that's where we are, right? Everything that we know is right there. And then the green slice represents everything. Now, some of you are going to be like, you're losing me, Patrick, but listen here. The green slice represents everything that we know we don't know. Does that make sense? I've heard of astrophysics. I don't know anything about it. I don't know anything about CPA tests. I don't know anything about uh, chemical biology. I don't know anything about it. I know it exists. I know people know about it. I don't know about it. And when you walk into foster care training, it's good to know what you don't know. That's good. That's helpful to know because it, makes you, it begins to make you open to learning new things. All right, you ready? You still, still follow me? Blue section. This represents what I don't know I don't know. There's a lot of things that I do not know I don't know out there, right? And as you get older, you realize how much you don't know. But when you're an 18-year-old, you do know. Got it? All right. We're, I think we're all... And then this final slice. He said this is the most important slice. This final purple slice. What I think I know, but don't. This is going to be fun because you can have an argument with your spouse later and you can use this little pie chart. Remember when Patrick said, here's what you think you know, but you don't know. In this little box represents so many things about the world. It seems to be, at least in the Woodbury area, this would be like people navigating a roundabout. They think they know, but they do not know. You don't have to break. You don't have to stop. You know, like. This would be a zipper merch. This would be so many things in life. And in this box would be also how to discipline a traumatized foster child. And almost everything about God and life and everything else. And he said, unless you're willing to acknowledge that, you're never going to learn anything. Unless you're willing to allow what you think you know to shrink and what you know you don't know to grow, you're never going to learn. And I thought that was so good. He says, and, and this, is, this is true, we can read all through scripture verses like this. Many of you can call to mind like Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, he who is wise in his own, wise, in his own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Or and Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 2. Listen, this is a good one. This is one of my favorite. Life first, because I need it. I need it. need it tattooed on my forehead. Anyone who thinks he knows does not yet know as he ought to know. <laughs> so as soon as I'm like, I got it figured out, God's like, nope, you don't. And you just proved it because you think you do. I know some of you are like, man, I am so thoroughly mixed up and firmly set, right? That's what you're feeling right now. But it's so important that we come to our relationship with God, that we allow the Spirit to, to, to develop and change us, and that we admit there's so much about life that we don't know and that we need to learn and that we need to be open and teachable. So in other words, what these verses are saying when they say you accepted the truth, you welcome the truth, what they're saying is make room for truth. Invite it in. Sit it down on the couch. Give it some lemonade. Have it in for a meal and think about it. Discuss it. But don't just say, I'm not even going to open the door because I don't, there's nothing that I have to learn because I have got it figured out. One of the main differences or a main difference between the people that followed Jesus and the people that crucified him 
was whether or not they were open and teachable. That was one of the main differences between the people that followed Jesus and changed the world and the people that wanted to kill him was whether or not they were open and teachable. So some of you are like, well, what about standing for the truth? What about taking a firm stand? We will talk about that next week because Thessalonians talks about that. But I think that we need to, we need to really do some deep work in our own lives and examine ourselves. I want you to read 1 Thessalonians 2.13 one more time as we wrap up. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, you welcomed it, you brought it in, you set it down. Not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So as we wrap up, I want you to maybe have some questions sort of ringing in your mind this week. How is God trying to shape me? How is God trying to shape me? Where is the example of Christ leading me? In what ways is the Spirit transforming me? There is so much more Thessalonians has to teach us about thriving, but it starts right here about being open and teachable and receptive to the truth. Uh, come back next week. We're going to talk about why stubbornness is not always such a bad virtue, and you can elbow your spouse and say, see, it's good. But come back next week, and we'll talk about why being able to be stubborn can sometimes be a godly virtue. We're going to wrap up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to be dismissed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be able to gather here, God, and I know that as Christians, as disciples, sometimes we're not the most open and receptive and self-aware people, uh, but I pray that through the power of your spirit, you'd begin to soften up our hearts and help us to see our blind spots and help us to surround ourselves with people that love us and care about us enough to challenge us and tell us the truth about our own weaknesses and flaws and not to be resistant uh, of where the spirit is trying to guide us. God, I pray that you would help us to, to, to not resist the Spirit, but repent of what we need to repent of, uh, to grow where we need to grow, uh, and to change what we need to change. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're